1968, the first wave was born. First wave was the name of a clandestine genetic experiment funded by the Department of Restricted Operations, otherwise known as Deep Red Ops. The experiment was conceived and spearheaded by a mysterious agent, one remembered in the annals of DRO lore only as Jonestown. This brilliant but amoral man combined the genetic material from two notorious serial killers, both of whom had shown a possible genetic predisposition to their violent crimes. Eggs were fertilized and placed into a series of hosts to bring to term. The result was six brothers, not counting the nine female fetuses that were killed in utero. The boys were all placed in different homes in different environments to be studied, to see how the nature impacted the nurture and vice versa. The first wave produced, amongst others, Don Lake, better known as DTK, the Death Trap Killer, Kurt Mason, the father of Emily Mason, and most notably, DRO shadow agent Bill Handel. Each of the brothers was very different from the others. But The first wave wasn't the inception of the experiment. A scientist, any scientist, even one like Jonestown, could not justify such a large and expensive project without some very substantial evidence of it being viable. In other words, before Jonestown could ramp up production for a full-scale first wave of genetically modified murder babies, he needed to show his DRO bosses, including the founder, John Spires, that it could, in fact, be done. The experiment actually began in 1960. And in 1961 a baby girl named Sarah was born. One day she would be infamous as the Skinner Sarah Whitlow. But initially, she existed only as proof of concept. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem. Killers, cannibals, and cults. Fearful fiction and furious fact. Tall tales and terrifying truths. This is a scary home companion.
by every metric. Young Sarah was a roaring success. Bright, strong, clever, attentive, curious to a fault. She was a wealth of data to the DRO team assigned to her. By the time Sarah was seven, she was really starting to understand just how strange her circumstances were. She was starting to ask a lot of questions. This coincided with the run-up to the birth of the first wave, which gave Jonestown two reasons to not want Sarah around anymore. She was never intended to be a she in the first place. They needed a male specimen. It was a bump in the road when the host presented with twins and a slightly larger bump when one of the twins devoured the other in the womb. By that point, there was no turning back, so they proceeded with the experiment. This was just a test, after all, so the sex of the baby shouldn't matter. For the first wave, that rule was much more strictly enforced. There were 15 viable pregnancies. Six healthy baby boys were born, while all the female fetuses were terminated. And this was because Jonestown had said, and he'd said it repeatedly, that he needed viable assets for the company, not women. With that in mind, he ordered the termination of seven-year-old Sarah without a second thought. He gave the assignment to a young, ambitious agent on his team, one named Ogden Sinclair. Sarah was to be killed. Humanely, of course, because they weren't monsters. And then her body was to be taken to Abilene, Vermont for a quiet disposal, and it would be as if she never existed. Except for all that wonderful data. Agent Sinclair might have been ambitious, but he realized that when push came to shove, he could not shoot a little girl in the head. Instead, he drugged her. He stowed her in the trunk, and he drove north through New England, across the Canadian border, and finally into Quebec. Although the tendrils of the DRO extend around the world, they're stronger in some places than others. Canada is one of the areas where Deep Red Ops has very little influence, which made it one of the only places where a child might escape their notice. Sarah spent the next few years living quietly on a farm in southern Quebec, along with several other foster children. The farm work was backbreaking, and going to school was actively discouraged, but overall the children were treated fairly enough. As a teenager, Sarah was very troubled. Her life had thus far been free of any trauma that she could consciously remember. But she was still a wellspring of dark feelings. And not sadness or depression. It was more like anger and fear. 
Sarah dreamed of dark things and vague shapes in the black, shapes that reached out for her hand. Sarah started to sneak off the farm and go to the nearby town, where she sampled around with booze and smoking and general teenage tomfoolery. The rush of new sensations pulled her into a new life. After that, well, you just couldn't keep Sarah Whitlow down on the farm. But the thing is, she wasn't running away from the farm. She was running into the arms of oblivion. Because that stone, that high, that room-spinning euphoria, that post-coital rush helped her forget about everything that was going on in her head. Whenever her mind was clear, she was as unhappy as ever. So for a couple three years, she tried to keep her thoughts and emotions as muddled as possible. And after a fashion, that worked. Sarah's life devolved into a daily grind of hustling and scoring and ripping people off. She had to move to a bigger town with a bigger underworld, just so she could get lost in it. She stole. She defrauded. She even sold herself from time to time. Whatever it took to keep the high going. Then, one night, someone took something from her in a most brutal way. Although Sarah was not above selling her body, this man and his friends in the drug den took what she did not want to give. When they were done with her, they put her unconscious body out with the trash. The Sarah that woke up the next morning was not the same Sarah that had been beaten to sleep. She felt different. She felt, somehow, more focused, more awake. Her mind was clear. And for once, she knew what to do. Sarah felt a purpose, a call to action. Without her trademark anger and fear, Sarah waited, hiding, patiently watching the drug den. She knew these French-Canadian animals were frequent heroin users. So after they had scored, and they were all on the nod and quite detached from reality, Sarah slipped inside and started slitting throats. Quietly, at first, until she got to the last one. With him, she took her sweet time, (laughs) and it felt good. Oh, baby, did it feel good. Now, good isn't the right word. Good doesn't cover it. Nor does great or excellent or awesome. It was a genuine moment of clarity. And all of the confusion and dark feelings fell still. 
The clouds opened and the sky split and everything in the world felt as it should. She was doing what she was supposed to be doing. This part of Quebec has long been a haven for drifters and runaways, which also meant that it had long been a hub of recruitment for sex traffickers and cults. The word on the street spread quickly about Sarah. Not because the drug dealers had any status or friends, just because the murders were shocking in their ferocity, even in this walk of life. People were talking. Other people were listening. Before the police could come looking for the murderer, another party showed interest. Her name was Lila Ambrose. Lila Ambrose was world famous for both her fashion and her humanitarian efforts. What was not so well known was that all of the fame and success was a false front. Lila Ambrose was an occultist, a vicious sadist, a merchant of the finest clothing and wares made from human skins, and one of the most powerful cult leaders on Earth. So, of course, Lila Ambrose did not walk into the bus station where Sarah had been sleeping to talk to her. She sent for her. Only when Sarah had been taken, vetted, stripped naked with her hands bound behind her, only then did she get to meet Lila Ambrose. This occurred at a ceremony held in a small compound deep in the middle of a Quebec forest. This place was well established, a, a growing cult of about a hundred people, and was one of many such installations Ambrose operated at that time. Surrounded by ghoulish worshippers, Sarah and a handful of other people were led to Lila, one at a time, to kneel before her. Who do you dream of? the cult leader asked. Sarah shook her head. I can't see them, but they reach out for me. Why did you kill those people? Because I was supposed to. I could feel it. Lila had her cut free and let her get dressed. But she kept staring at the younger woman as if curious. I feel like I know you from somewhere, Sarah. But Sarah didn't have an answer. How could she have known that she looked so much 
like her father. Although Lila Ambrose ruled the cult with an iron fist, she only visited every few weeks or so. Sarah didn't care about that one way or the other. Not yet. She was still new to this world and very eager to learn. She read about the ghastly ones and the end of days. Although their little cult was focused on a demon called the Skin Weaver, Sarah kept an open mind and explored the entire sinister mythology. She loved it. It wasn't quite deja vu, and it wasn't quite that it seemed familiar. It was more like, have you ever heard great simple idea, and although you know that you've never heard it before, this idea makes so much sense that you feel like somehow you've always known it. To Sarah, this cult felt like home, the closest thing to a home that she'd ever known. It was during the first few weeks she realized that she was pregnant. She asked one of the cult elders about getting something to take care of it. But they refused. That she was with child was a boon to all of them. Miss Ambrose always made a point to come by and see new children. She loved babies. Their skins made the most supple corsets and gloves and fetched the highest prices. Sarah was informed that she would have that child, and then she would give it to Miss Ambrose as a gift. If Sarah was found worthy, then who knows? Maybe she could even stick around and watch as the baby was flayed. Sarah didn't respond to any of that, because she knew that anything less, that complete, unequivocal devotion, was not tolerated. And she was devoted. She was. She also felt a twinge of those old feelings at the thought of giving up that baby. Sarah had never wanted children, was adamantly opposed to ever having children. But since finding this place, since finding her purpose, she'd never been happier. Was it the cult? Or was it the baby that was causing these feelings? Looking for answers, she kept studying, reading, using the cult's techniques for guided meditation and lucid dreaming. She worked in the gardens. She learned the crafts of butchering and leather work. Even as her belly grew heavy, Sarah never slowed down. Others, many others, all around her, claimed to be visited by the dark and ghastly spirits from the other side, or to catch glimpses of the end of days. Were all of them lying, or was Sarah being shut out? Because no matter how much she tried, or how badly she wanted it, she could never see past those reaching hands. Although on certain nights... She could hear them calling to her, 
raspy, ripped up voices from raggedy throats and split lips. She was getting closer to them, but not close enough. When Sarah was ready to drop, Lila Ambrose brought a specialist in to induce labor. While Sarah gave birth to a perfect little baby girl, Lila Ambrose held court over the rest of the cult, demanding that all members cut swatches from their own skin and present them as badges to her. The specialist tried to take the baby away before Sarah could even hold her, and everything went red for a moment. When Lila came into the room, she found her specialist laying on the floor in a puddle of blood and amniotic fluid, the umbilical cord stretched thin and wrapped twice around his neck like a garrot. Sarah held her baby. They were looking each other in the eyes. She could feel the connection, which Lila severed. Give me the baby, she commanded. It was hers by right, and she didn't want to take it. She wanted it given. Give it to me. Sarah stared at Lila, weighing her options. Although she hated to negotiate, Lila knew this would be the best possible time to drop her bombshell. Okay, kid, how about this? I'll trade you. Give me the baby, and I'll tell you who your father is. Sarah held the baby girl, and Lila held an old picture. I've been thinking about you, girl, Lila said. Based on our talks, I've had extensive research done on you, and we found nothing. You're not on paper, here or in the States. You're a ghost. But that's not why you've been on my mind. It's your face. The cut of your cheek, the distance between your eyes. The way you shift your jaw to one side when you're thinking. And your fingers. Fuck, those fingers. I know them. You've got a strong resemblance to your father, Sarah. I spent enough time with him, I can see his shadow anywhere. Even in a ghost. She threw that old picture on the floor next to Sarah. Your father is a man named Ira Dunwich. Sarah knew that name. That name rang out in the halls of the ghastly faithful. He was an artist, 
a visionary, a legend. Some even called him the child of the island. Wasn't he executed? Sarah asked. Lila shook her head. I assure you, he was not executed. He's still out there, somewhere. I wish I could find him. You know what? I think that you might could find him. More to the point, I think that if you go looking, Sarah, that he will find you. Lila made a proposition, a trade. The baby girl would stay right here with the cult and be protected. When Sarah found her father, she could bring him back. Not only would Lila return her child, but she would give Sarah the wealth to do whatever the fuck she wanted with the rest of her life. As soon as Sarah was strong enough to be mobile, she slipped out of the cult compound late at night and followed a lead that Lila had given her. She went south, back into the nation of her birth, searching for a tiny pinprick on the map, the remote house where Ira Dunwich had lived, where he had created the accursed painting called The Ravenous One, and where he had been captured by authorities. Sarah was going to follow in his footsteps, go where he went, do what he did, and she would let that guide her through the rest of her journey. There was a strong presence in the Dunwich house, especially down in the basement, where it felt like the walls were pulsing with life. There was raw, arcane power here. It reverberated through her. When she slept, the whispering voices were louder. She was closer to them, and they encouraged her. She was on the right path following in the footsteps of her father. Sarah stayed in that house for several weeks, sleeping on the floor wrapped in whatever discarded materials she could find. She drank the leaking brown water from rusty faucets and killed food with her own hands before skinning it and offering it to the basement as a blood sacrifice. The house responded to blood and to death, but responded even more to the animals being slowly skinned alive, as if it thrived on suffering. And then the voices stopped getting louder. She was as close as she could get from this place. She needed to keep going to keep following the path her father had taken, which meant... Slate County Correctional Facility, and the pit of hell in the basement called Cell 6. And that was not so easy as just walking in. It took a little hustle. And it was at this point that Sarah Whitlow became known as the Skinner. Her first victim was a single man who lived near Lancaster. She killed him 
and then skinned his hands and arms to make a pair of gloves. So finely crafted were these gloves that she could leave crystal clear fingerprints at her next three crime scenes. The police followed the prints from those gruesome carnal houses to the home of the first victim. That's where they found Sarah waiting for them, still wearing her gloves. She waved at them, and she laughed as they took her away. The year was 1983. Sarah Whitlow was sent to cell six. Her trial had been sensational, but brief. Sarah didn't want to fight the charges. She wanted to be sent to the foulest, dankest, most infamous cell in the United States correctional system. And so it came to pass. Sarah was sentenced to death to be the youngest woman ever executed by the state of Pennsylvania. Until her execution, she was locked away in cell six. Ira Dunwich had spent 15 years in this cell, and she could feel his presence there. The confined area was like an invisible engine redlining with vibrations she could feel in her thoughts. Since Dunwich had left the cell six years previous, it had produced a rash of suicides, so Sarah was watched closely. But she wasn't tormented by the cell. Sarah was embraced by it. She could hear the whispering voices while she was awake now, They came from the other side of the cement wall. And when she slept, that wall cracked open. She would step through into a little chunk of bleak rock that rested on the edge of hell's vast black ocean. She saw the twisted figures she recognized from the books and drawings of the cult. The ghastly ones beckoned her told her this was her home, that her journey needed to continue. She needed to keep following the trail of her father's life back to where he had been born, the end of days. Weeks fell into months and Sarah stayed in awe of the cell. It was a conduit a soft place where the island was so close she could feel it. It was waiting for her. But as the saying goes, you can't get there from here. Sarah didn't worry. 
She knew that the path would present itself. For the first time in her life, Sarah had faith. Her father had escaped this very cell at the hour of his execution. The whispers in the walls, the visions in her sleep, they soothed her, they comforted her. She was only weeks away from her execution when, in 1984, Slade County Correctional Facility was shut down by the state. All prisoners were transferred to other facilities. But because of her notorious status, Sarah was given a private transport. Or perhaps there was another reason. On a lonely strip of rural Pennsylvania highway, the prison van pulled to the side of the road. A long black limousine with smoky windows was waiting. The guards removed Sarah's shackles, pulled her from the van, and left her standing on the side of the road. The back door of the limousine opened and a Native American woman of about Sarah's age stepped out onto the pavement. The woman smiled at her. The famous Sarah Whitlow. And it felt like a genuine smile. Did they send you? Sarah asked. She wasn't surprised in the slightest about being saved from the executioner's blade. Yes, Yes, they did, the woman replied. But perhaps it's not the they that you mean. Sarah got goose flesh on the back of her neck. Who are you? she asked. Sarah, you've been chasing your father so desperately. But aren't you curious at all? about your mother's side of the family? Come with me. I have such things to show you. Thank you for listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. The story of Sarah Whitlow cuts a swath down the middle of a lot of other stories we've told here. I recommend checking out The Secret of Cell 6 and The Ghastly House of Horrors. If you'd like to know what happened to Sarah's baby, listen to the episode called Mercy. And if you want to know what happened to Sarah next, well, you're just going to have to stick around for a while. You can find A Scary Home Companion on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or 
contact the show by emailing us directly at a scary home companion at gmail.com. Better yet, sign up for the Patreon. It has exclusive episodes not available anywhere else, as well as a bevy of extras. The episode was produced and edited by Jeff Davidson. It featured the music Last Wave by P.S. versus Infetu. Sore Throat by Syndrome. Father Midnight by Earth. Gloves by Third Mind Movement. Happy Family by Naked Hasselhoff. And Chelsea Oxendine with the theme music. so much like her father. Although Lila Ambrose ruled... Sorry. I just got distracted by how hard I fucking killed that line delivery. All right. <laughs> Gotta stop patting myself on the back. Throw up my shoulder.